it's good to know that there is a power that we can sing about that saves. Man, how comforting that is to me, and, and, it, and it blesses my heart to sing a song like that and, and to know what I'm about to, to be able to preach. Um, it's very humbling. But as, as a preface to what we're about to get into, I have some thoughts. Why is it important to, to remember and, and know and reflect on the work of Christ being His, his death, His burial, His resurrection, His, his ascension, and His interceding on our behalf? Why, why, why are those things important? Well, I've, I've got a few things here, and I'm, I'm going to try to try to be brief with this because we have a lot to cover, and we're going to have to move really quickly. But firstly, it's all over the Bible. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and interceding, it's all over the place. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, being the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. 1 Corinthians 15.17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's what we put our hope in. That's what we, we trust in. We trust in the fact that, that He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins on the cross that He has been raised because if He wasn't raised, our faith is futile. We have nothing to hope in. And then we have Christ died. He, he, he rose again. He's at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us on our behalf. That's what we put our hope in. If we don't put our hope in these things and our trust, then why are we here? What's the point? It's our salvation don't forget Romans 8.34. Christ died. He is the one who died. No other could, could die and it, it be a saving grace. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. If He just died, it wouldn't be nothing miraculous. There wouldn't be nothing cool about that. It would be ordinary. But He died and he, he rose again. He's at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. This is why... This list of things is why we catechize our families. We teach our children up in the way that they should go that they may not depart from it. It's why we push that here as a church. It's why we get together again on a Sunday night instead of just a Sunday morning and worship because we have something to worship, something great and glorious. Before we dig into our text, let's have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for Jesus. Over and over again, when we pray, we pray as a church family, we pray in our homes, we pray and we say, thank you for Jesus. But God, I pray that we don't take Jesus for granted. I pray that we don't just say that out of habit or out of, out of vain words and in vain repetition. God, I pray that we truly thank you for Jesus and we truly remember and try to understand the magnitude of the sacrifice of you offering your son as a sacrifice, offering your son and knowing that he's going to 
bear the sins on a cross. God, I thank You for His resurrection. I thank You that He has ascended to Your right hand and He is interceding for us. God, I thank You for that. And God, I pray as, as, we, as we try to walk through this text, it's a lot to cover, but God, I, I pray that we can truly understand that Jesus died on the cross so that we might belong to Him. God, this is where we, we rest our hope. This is where we put our faith. I pray that you can, you, you'll come now and you'll help us understand this text, God. Thank you for, for your saving grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You'll turn in your Bibles to Romans 7. <clears throat> We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. and We have a, a lot of ground to cover. And I have one verse that I want to specifically emphasize it with one point, but there's just so much in the context here that we, we have to cover a little bit before, a little bit after to really understand what is being said here. Um, so we have a lot, of co- lot to cover, and we're going to move really quickly. So I hope you're ready to listen. We've got a lot to do. So verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is, is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is, is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from, the, from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, this is, this is our, our verse, so pay close attention. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. When I was a young boy, when I, when I was growing up, um, th- there was a man in our neighborhood who was really keen on keeping his lawn. And when I mean keeping his lawn, I mean tip-top shape. He, he wanted the lime and the fertilizer. He even went so far that by the road he put a sign out that said, keep off the grass. That sign may as well have said, walk on my grass or stay off the road and stay on the grass. Because I don't know anyone in the neighborhood who I, who I grew up with and the people that I hung around, none of us could resist the urge to, to, to not step on the grass. But I doubt we would have ever even thought about it had there not been a specific statement and a command that said, don't step on the grass, don't do it. Those words produced rebellion of every kind in our deepest parts. Because the only thing we wanted to do, the only thing we thought about 
was to step on the grass. God's law has been around from the beginning. Adam and Eve had one simple rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. One simple law explicitly commanded, don't do it, and they couldn't resist the urge. So we all know what would happen, and they couldn't help themselves. They ate from the tree anyways, and by doing so, they revealed an interesting principle. The law, the command, cannot protect us from sin. In fact, the law actually binds us to sin. So what would have happened in the garden had no command been given? Nothing. Nothing would have happened. They would have eaten of every tree and, and gone on in perfection. But, but Adam was given a command. Don't eat. And a consequence if he does eat. Eat from the tree and, and that will produce sin which will then produce death. Or, or don't eat of the tree and live. And I think Paul in Romans 7, 7 and 8 uh, describes what happens in us and, and in Adam by relating to his own experience with the law. He says this, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. The moment Adam had been given a command, an order, or, or a law, he was capable of disobedience and sin. That's how wicked and sinful and depraved and perverted we truly are. The moment we are capable of sin and disobeying a command, we'll do it. It's just like your kids. We've talked about this multiple times. I do not have to teach Ava Lee how to disobey. All parents in the room can probably agree. Your kids, you don't have to tell them to scream and cry. You don't have to tell them. You don't really have to tell them to, to, to not do something. They just know, and they'll look at you. No. And they'll, they'll tell you no. As soon as they're capable of disobedience and sin, they're going to do it. So picture this. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And they're enjoying perfect weather and their perfect bodies and eating perfect food. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Then, then God says, you see that tree over there? Don't eat from it. One command. Just don't eat of that tree. Now Adam and Eve to this point still have perfect lives. They have every other tree in creation for food. They have companionship and there's, there's no need for clothing. There's no latest fashion trends. They, they've got it made. There's that one tree they can't have. That's like a, a beeping alarm going off in, in the back of their heads. It's, it's like they can't enjoy anything else because they're so preoccupied with what they can't have. In a sense, the law, which was only meant to keep us from sinning, to keep them from sinning, actually proved that all they wanted and desired was their selfishness and sin. That's all they wanted. Well, why can't we eat from that tree? Well, why is it a problem? What are we missing if we don't eat from that tree? Enter the crafty serpent. If you eat of that tree, you'll be just like God. And God knows that. So he's keeping it from you. So, so a coveting desire is born inside of the man and the woman 
that, that couldn't have been born without the law. If there was no law, this coveting desire would, would not be. Now, this doesn't mean that, that the law is sin any more than a, a speed limit sign is sin. Where there is no speed limit sign, you know, you, you go as fast as you want. There, there's, no, there's no law saying you can't go however fast. But when the sign says 55 miles per hour, our carnal nature, our flesh says, five, you're fine, you know, it ain't no big deal, we can go five over. I do it all the time, five, five over is okay. So the sign has just proven the opportunity for sin, just like the law. There was a law, there was a command, it proved that there was an opportunity for sin because what happened? They sinned. The law is good, but the law cannot save a sinner. The law is good, but it cannot free a sinner. The law reveals to sinner every opportunity for disobedience and sin. And because of the law, the sinner is bound to sin. So verse 1 in chapter 7 Let's start our verse-by-verse verse breakdown. It says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So the apostle uses a comparison between the, the former and the present state of a believer. At the same time, he's trying to, to wean the Jewish believers away from their fondness of the Mosaic law. So he, he says, I speak to them that know the law, to the, to the Jews chiefly here. The law is binding, and, and, and a law that is binding is definitely speaking of marriage here. That's the only law that, that, that binds and unites two people as long as he lives. This, this law is only binding as long as he lives. Death ends the marriage oath. That's why we say, till death do us Part, that's where it comes from. So verse 2, for a married woman, like I said, we're going to be moving really quickly. For a married woman is bound, is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So this, this verse is a specific illustration of the general principle uh, in Romans 7.1. A married woman is bound to her husband while he lives by law. The law is what binds them together. But when her husband is dead, she is freed from the law by which she was bound to him and to him alone. So it's a simple illustration. Men, or it could be men or women, believers, are the wife. We are the wife. The law is the former husband. Guess who's the new husband? She remarries. Christ. Christ is a new one. And we'll see soon enough where the new husband comes into play. In verse 3, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The word accordingly, or, or, or so then, she will be called an adulteress if she, she lives with another man while her husband is alive. It's all about a bond. All about a bond. If he is alive, you still have a bond or a union. So Paul just continues to, to use this, 
example, this uh, analogy here. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she remarries another man, she is not adulterous. Why? Because she's free. The bond is broken. The oath is over. And here's our main verse. So let's, let's try to, if you, if you can, try to really dig in and, and, and pay attention here. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Right off the bat, I want you to notice how this verse builds on each other, on itself. So it says you have you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You may belong to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So it's not only that this oath is going to be broken because someone is dying. It's the simple fact that you are dead to this law. The law has no more restraints on you because we've already learned from Adam and Eve here that they can't uphold the law. Well, if they can't uphold the law, continuing on down the line, they can't uphold the law. So you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you can belong to another. You're dead to the law. Now we belong to Christ. The only way to do that is from Christ's death on the cross. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So verse 4 draws a conclusion based on, on what Paul has written in chapter 6. And, and I, I hope that you'll, you'll go through sometime this week and read chapter 6 so you can kind of understand a little bit better. So he's drawing a conclusion uh, which what he has written in chapter 6 and in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. So the first part of, of verse 4. Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law to the body of Christ. What we see is we are dead to the law by the body of Christ. So Paul's referring to his, his brothers here, his fellow Christians. He's saying, brothers, you're dead to this law. This Mosaic law has, has nothing left for you. You're dead to it. The reason you're dead to it is because the body of Christ. You have a different offer now. You have a different standing. You have a different hope. You have something else to put your rest in. You have died. It's, it's passive. It means that you were put to death. It's gone, it's over, and we're clear that he's not speaking of a physical death because he's talking to someone. So they're not physically dead, but the death with reference to the law. It's clear that it's the Mosaic law. So you have died to the law through the body of Christ. What about this body of Christ allows us to be dead to the law and alive back to Christ and belonging to Him. It's clearly His, his crucifixion. It was his, his body dying so that we can belong to Him. Well, not only are we dead to the law by the body of Christ, but we also see that we, we, we are dead to this law by Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. If you were to die to something, to belong to something else, it wouldn't make any sense that you belong to something way over there rather than the thing that had died 
to pay that price. So that, that, that you uh, belong as a, a united or, or married. Some other versions may say specifically married. And that means to belong to. When you are married, you leave your parents and you belong to your spouse. You belong to that person. So that, the word that, therefore, is, is used as a sense of in order or that a purpose thereof. So you're, you're dead to the law, to the body of Christ, in order or for the purpose, for the specific purpose that you may belong to Christ. You're dead to this law that has nothing left to offer you so that you may belong to Him who can give you hope. So that to another means to another husband. So this passage wasn't written in order to encourage the remarriage of widows. That's done elsewhere uh, in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 16. Here, the, the widows, the, the, the death there is referring to all believers, whether male or female. It's not a specific widow passage that we need to go to when, when a widow dies. You say, well, it's okay to remarry. That's not what this passage is for. The first husband is the law. The second husband is Christ. Paul is using this analogy to show that believers were formerly under the authority of the law, but now they belong to Christ and under His authority. So even to Him who is raised from the dead is a clear reference to Christ and what He has done. He, he died. He rose again. You, you can belong to Him. So not only are we dead to the law by the body of Christ and, and now we are, are, are married to Christ, but in addition we see that we should bring good fruit. We should bear fruit for God. We should bring forth fruit to God. It, it is a purpose clause and it, it expresses the reason why He died. The, the, the reference uh, died with reference to the law, but are alive with reference to God. So we see that we are dead to the law. We belong to Christ. And there's that word in order again, for the purpose of. So we're dead to the law, belonging to Christ for the purpose of that we may belong to Him. Also for the purpose that we may bear fruit for God. Excuse me. That is understood in the, the, the sense of in order that or, or for the purpose that. That's, that's the reason it happened. If you look back at Romans 6, 21 and 23, it says, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see in Galatians 5, 22 and 24, but the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, are dead to the law with its passions and desires. 
So dead to the law is dead to sin. Death changes everything. In our passage, the, the death nullifies, uh, the death of her husband nullifies the, the first contract. It's over with. The law is, is nullified and, and void. So she is free from it. Christ's death saves us and allows us to belong to God. It's the only thing that we have that allows us to belong to God because without Jesus, without his sacrifice on the cross, how can we get to God? So his death on the cross allows us to belong to him. Believers are like the woman. We are free from the first contract. We died, so the, the law now has no authority over us. Now, do we, do we not try to uphold the law? Are we, are we to try to stay away from the law because it has no validity? No, by no means. That's not the case. When we died to the law, we were joined to another. It's interesting that the other that we are joined to, the one that nullifies the law, is the one that gave the law. One of the problems with this teaching is that uh, some people hear that, that we are, we are uh, dead to the law, so we are free to do what we want. It's like someone took down all the speed limit signs and said you can do whatever you want, but nothing could be more further from the truth. That's not, that's not the case. <coughs> on, the other, on, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness. The law is, is weak. Hebrews 7.19 says, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Who is this better hope? Jesus. A better hope is introduced. Jesus, through which we draw near to God. The only thing that allows us to draw near and belong to something else other than this law is Jesus. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't need the law. We have Christ. Romans 3, 31 says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So it's not that the, the law is completely void and there's no use. That's not the case. The law is good. The lawgiver is good. Before salvation, <coughs> before salvation, the law pointed us to Christ, but it couldn't do anything for us to improve our condition. Our condition was no better based on the law. Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law, and, and we received His righteousness in doing so. So now we obey the law through His righteousness. We were crucified with Christ, and now our lives are in Him. He is, he is raised, and we are with Him, and we are free from the requirements of the law because they are already fulfilled. Now we live out the law through faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for us. So just remember, God is not the enemy of the law. He spoke it, and it is good. So verses 5 and 6 in Romans 7 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. At one time, we were slaves to sin. We, we could only break the law. That's all that we were capable of doing is, is breaking the law. So we heard, keep off the grass, and we danced all in the yard. We wanted to play with that. We, we heard, don't eat from the tree, and we filled our bellies with the fruit. Our kids here don't do that, but what do they want to do anyways? They want to go and, and do what they want to do. The law aroused our sinful passions because we are sinful people. The result of sin is more sin. And what more sin led to was, was death. But verse 4, I want to read it again because I think it kind of summarizes the whole passage in the middle of the passage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. I've got a few points of application here. And I guess this would be classified as the in closing. Firstly, or first of all, I guess, believers must understand that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ because of our union with Him in His death. His death provides a union. Just like our verses here. So our union with Him in His death, burial and resurrection, this is how we walk in faith. <coughs> this is how we, we, we win our spiritual victories, if you will. This is how we are, are comforted and how we, how we face death and suffering without flinching. This is, this is where we get our rest, our hope as Christians, in the fact that we are dead to the law and we're raised with Christ and His righteousness. We, we are dead to that law and we can belong to Him. Secondly, all believers... Again, all believers are expected to leave the life of sin when joining Christ. It's pretty simple. We all know that. The woman in, in the example couldn't have possibly been with two husbands at once without being an adulteress. How strange it would be if she kept the dead husband around and went and joined to another in the new marriage. How strange if she, she claimed two husbands. Yet this is what happens spiritually when we choose Christ and sin. It doesn't work. You're dragging along your sin and you're trying to pick Christ. You can't have it both ways. You're dead to the law. You're dead to these old things. You've you got to let those things go and you belong to Christ. Put on His righteousness. You belong to Him. This is kind of a, a side note, but I think it's... Uh, very important. Leaving a life of sin to follow Christ shouldn't be seen as a sacrifice. Leaving your sin behind, letting it go, you shouldn't be thinking to yourself, well, maybe if I could just have a little bit of that sin because I feel like I'm losing too much. A lot of people, I've heard it said where um, they're just not ready to give up all of their fun yet. If I, if I go and, and join this, this family of Christ, I've I got to give up everything. It, it won't be 
fun anymore. But a true believer comes to see his sin in light of its true nature. They see sin for what it really is. Sin is not good. It's, it's embarrassing. It's vengeful and deadly. It crouches at our doors wait, waiting to have us. But we've been freed from that sin. Why would we ever think that, that giving up wickedness for righteousness is a sacrifice? We, we get Christ. It's not, it's not a sacrifice to lose sin. It should be a joy to, to be able to get rid of that sin because you're not in bondage anymore. You belong to Christ. It shouldn't be a sacrifice. <coughs> Before we pray, I want to read verse 4 one more time. Because I think it, it has so much in it that, that the first time I read it, I looked at it and I was thinking, well, that's easy. It seems very self-explanatory. I feel like any normal person can just stand up here and tell you what verse 4 means. But I, I want you to, to really think about it. So likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, through His death, His body, so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 